Well, as I begin my our time in the Word together, I want to make two comments uh, just to start. Uh, the first is that at the end of the service, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. I thought of any time this would be a great time to do it. We reflect upon thanks and thanksgiving, and I, I trust that my message will help focus your heart and mind upon the cross. It's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Jesus upon the cross dying in our place. And uh, my second comment has to do with my sermon last week. How many of you remember my sermon last week? Yeah, and uh, perhaps... What did you say? (laughs) Exactly. You remember my illustration and uh, my water bottle rocket that made a hole in the ceiling. And uh, I just wanted to say in response to that, we put in the the bulletin each week, a reminder that says, please remember that we are guests here at Rockford Christian High School. Make every effort to leave the school just as you found it. And um, as you can see, there's no hole in the ceiling. There is a replaced ceiling tile. I'm grateful to the men. I didn't even talk to them. They went and they replaced that uh, ceiling tile. But let me also say that I think I set a terrible example of how we ought to treat things around here. And I have been grieved by that this week. I just want to apologize and even confess that that was wrong. And I just ask you to pray for me. I might think through my illustrations a bit better. They are important to help us understand truth, and yet I need to be more wise in that. And so I hope that didn't communicate anything to you. If it does, I hope it communicates sorrow, especially to children, perhaps. You might treat the building in a way that you would treat your home. So, with those things being said, let me begin our time in a, a word of prayer. Lord, I thank You for your, your gracious kindness to us in Christ and would pray this morning, God, that as we focus in this time in the Word for the next 45, 50 minutes or so, upon the perspective of thanks and thanksgiving, I pray that we would leave this place with an overwhelming sense of how thankful we ought to be for Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, as we think of Your Word, as we think of Christ and all that He is, as we think of all that He has done for us, I pray that it would fill us, God, with an overflowing desire to be a thankful, joyful people expressing our gratitude. It's You who worked that in us, and so that's why I pray to You, O Lord, that that would be true of us, that we would be a thankful people. For we will see today even how thankful we ought to be. And so I pray you do that even now in this time to stir our hearts to give thanks and honor to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to deviate from our our regular plan. We have been marching verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for several years now. But today I want to focus a topical message on uh, the giving of thanks. The reason is pretty obvious and simple. In our country, in four days from now, we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. 
And one of the things I love about Thanksgiving is that it hasn't been commercialized nearly to the extent that all the other holidays do, right? You think about Christmas and you think about, you know, commercialism. And you think about Easter and you think about bunnies and eggs. But when you think about Thanksgiving, you think about maybe pilgrims and, and turkeys and, and food and, and at least some sense of the history of our nation and the Thanksgiving that was given comes to mind. And so it's been a holiday that hasn't been defiled in many ways. And so in that we can rejoice with it, we can celebrate it. And so that's what I want to do this morning. And I know that when you think about Thanksgiving, lots of different things come to mind. Some people think about family and friends. Some think about turkey and football. Some think about loneliness and depression. But I want us today really to think about Jesus Christ, who really is the whole source and reason and means for our, our giving thanks. So I want to look at one verse of Scripture. It's here in your bulletin. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. You can open your, your Bibles there. Colossians 3, verse 16. And my aim this morning really is what I, I prayed, that I want you to leave this place with an overwhelming sense of how thankful you ought to be for Christ Jesus. Look at Colossians 3, verse 17, a really simple verse. And I'm going to use this verse really then as, as, a, as a place to launch. And we'll look at much of Colossians because in many ways this is a, a crescendo. It really pulls together many pieces of Colossians with this one verse. Paul writes this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. It's a simple verse. I can read my text twice. Let me read it for you. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Here's my first point this morning. Thanksgiving should saturate your life. Thanksgiving should saturate your life. Kids, that just means it should make it all full. It should fill it up. It should be characterized by thanksgiving. And I, I trust that you see that here in verse 17. One of the first things you noticed about the verse you should see is this word whatever. It, it's just an exhaustive scope of things. It says whatever you do in word or deed. This verse deals with every aspect of your life. In fact, it's so inclusive that it touches all that you do. There's nothing in your life that escapes the boundaries set forth in this verse. I mean, you just can't get outside of whatever you do in word and deed. I thought about getting outside of things. I thought about the earth. And I, I did a little study this, this week. And in order to escape the earth's atmosphere, you need to be traveling at 25,000 miles an hour. That's how hard it is to escape. The, you know how fast that is? That's like seven miles per second. To escape the gravitational pull of the earth. To escape the earth is very, very difficult. To escape this verse is very, very difficult. And so whether you're eating your breakfast, whether you are driving to work, whether you are golfing on a golf course, whether you are, this week hopefully my kids say, shoveling the snow... Whether you are sewing a dress on your sewing machine. Whether you are talking on the phone with a friend. Whether you are sitting here listening to a service. To a service. 
this verse applies exactly to how you're doing these things. It says, do it all. Whether you're speaking in your word or in your deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even here it is, with the attitude of thanksgiving over it all. This says that more than one holiday pronounced by the government every year, thanksgiving ought to be more than this one day. It ought to be every day and all the time, or as people today are prone to say, 24-7 ought to govern our activities, ought to be saturated our life. You know, the Bible is full of expressions of thanks. Over and over, the psalmists are expressing how they give thanks to the Lord. Like, for instance, Psalm 7, verse 17. The psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord. Or Psalm 9, verse 1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. And they're just saturated. Just my whole heart, I will give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 52, verse 9, I will give thanks to you forever. Not only with all I'm doing, but even duration, all the time, forever. Psalm 86, verse 12. I will give thanks to you with all my heart. And over and over again, the, the Scripture writers tell us and command us to be thankful. Psalm 30, verse 4. Give thanks to His holy name. It's a command to us to give thanks to God. Or Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Or Psalm 136, verse 2, Give thanks to the God of gods, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And we're told that, as we began our service this morning, Psalm 92, verse 1, It's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. And so I don't think that I need to work very hard to convince you of the necessity of giving thanks this morning and being thankful. But perhaps what you do need a reminder with this morning is to see how this should dominate your life. Maybe this is your reminder this morning, that whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You know, one of the things that ought to characterize you as a child of God, above all others, is that you have this eminently thankful attitude about all that you do. That you are this thankful person, always giving thanks to God for Everything around you. Because in whatever you do, you're doing it with an attitude of thanks. And so I ask you, are you a thankful person? I mean, you're you're commanded right here and you're told that in everything, we ought to give thanks. Do you find yourself often thanking God for the things that He has done for you? The things that He has given to you as you you walk about your day and you you think, is it always, God, I thank you for that. I thank you for this. I thank you for that. I think of the hymn writer that says, For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies. Right? We sang that this morning in our prayer service, our prayer time this morning. Just for everything and for all these things. This is a hymn of grateful praise I sing to you. That ought to be everything. We ought to see outside and see, see what we see, the, the creation, see people and see their good works and give thanks to God for that. Do you do that? Do you give thanks to God for the things that others do for you? Maybe a gift that you receive. Are you thankful to God for that? Maybe something that someone does for you. Are you thankful to God for that? Or maybe circumstances that went your way. Or, you know, a roof over your head. A place to sleep at night. A warm bed to sleep in. Are you thankful for these things? You need to be thankful for all of these. 
And how about this? Do you express your thanks? Or does it stay inside of you? You say, hey, I'm a thankful person, but it never gets out. I would contend that if you are a thankful person, you will express your thanks. A thankful person is just so full of gratitude that it's got to come out, and it will come out. So if it doesn't come out, I ask you, are you thankful? And these kind of questions are important because one of the characteristics of those who hate God is that they are unthankful. They certainly, they, they take the things in that God gives them and they enjoy them and freely accept them, but they have no expression of gratitude to the one who gave it. But the characteristic of the one who loves God is that they are thankful. You know, and I love the way that Paul practices what he preaches. If you know anything about the epistles of Paul, almost, I don't want to say all letters, most letters, he starts a little preamble and then he starts and thanks the Lord for the people in the church to whom he's writing. And it starts here in Colossians. Turn back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for all of you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Here's Paul writing these Colossians, expressing his thankfulness to God for their salvation... For they had believed, right? They had faith in Christ Jesus. And he's thanking God how their faith was expressed in love for the saints. That's what he's thanking God for. And and you can just go from epistle to epistle to epistle to epistle, time and time again. I give thanks as I remember every every remembrance of you. You know, praying and offering thanks to God. I give thanks to God because he's worked in you time and time and time again. It's very typical of Paul. And I believe that's appropriate even for me as a pastor, right? To, to look at these and express my own thankfulness to God for the things that He has done in your lives. I've been convicted by this verse here in Colossians chapter 3 that I, I'm not sure I do this enough. Paul did it almost every letter that he wrote to them. And so, you know, one of the things that I did was I took our, our new directory. We have it in the back, in the back. You know, I just went through this directory and I wrote down all the names of everybody in our church, all the families in our church, and I said, boy, what am I thankful to the Lord with these people about? And, and here, here it is. Just, and, and, you know, I, I just want to express that thanks. You know, I think I could go around to every single family. You know, I think about the plowmans, and I thank you for your encouragement to me. I mean, you were encouraging just Friday night, and I'm thankful to that. I think about the Scots, and they do an incredible amount of work that you guys never see all behind the scenes. And I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for the Hilberts, just their faithfulness, Elroy especially, his discernment and biblical truth. I thank the Lord for Joe. I don't know anything about you, Joe, but I know that you like John MacArthur, and I'm thankful to you for that. <laughs> and the Guskies, just your faithful encouragement, Phil, your feedback to me, I've appreciated that. I think of the Sosnowskis. And uh, just your incredible service to the church. Right? Tim, I love your, your spontaneity and your joy. Just kind of your, your zeal. Just, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Brad, I appreciate your integrity. Robert, I just appreciate your zeal as well. Luke, I appreciate your heart to be here. And I can just go, keep going. You know, Larson's, I appreciate how the way God has been changing in the last several weeks. I think about the other Larson's. 
Scott Larson, they're, they're both right there. I appreciate your heart to serve. Just you, what you've done in the flock has been awesome. And I think about the REITs. Dirk, your heart for, for missions and your heart to help people, like bar none. It's awesome. The goals, I, I thank the Lord for how you've really reached out to people. Pam, I think especially you got an evangelistic Bible study, and I'm thankful, Lord, for that. And Lisa, I know things are difficult in your family, and yet you've pledged to be faithful here. I've appreciated that. Lance, I think about your integrity as a deacon to save here in the church, and I think all the financial matters. It's like it's not a problem with Lance. You know, and you all can agree with that. I'm thankful, Lord, for that. And the Robines, I thank you. You're just willing to do whatever. Just whatever. Jed, you know, I thank you for your faithfulness. Thank the Lord for that. The Fuscos, I think of anything, I think about your realism. You're just real and sincere. And the Irishians, I thank the Lord that they sit right there every Sunday. They are just faithful. In fact, I, one of the things I appreciate about the Irishians, they've been at every single meeting that we've ever had unless absolutely physically impossible to do it. And I just appreciate that. I'm thankful. John Wazork, you know, I think things are difficult for you, and yet to much you can. You are faithful here each week. And the gardens, really, I'm, I'm thankful to you for your openness and your honesty and your trust in the Lord through difficult times this past year. I think about the youngs, and I'm thankful to the Lord. I think about Lori and your heart to, to really serve other women, like in the jail, like you're doing that. And George, one of the things I'm thankful, Lord, about you is that just we talk about spiritual things, often I see you tear up. And I'm thankful to God for that. You know, Steve Belanger, I'm thankful for your heart for missions and for reaching out to church and really pressing us beyond. The Delray, Susan, I thank you. I thank the Lord for your sweet spirit. Just have a sweet spirit about you and your family. I go to the, the Krauses, and they are a joyful family through financial difficulties, which you've experienced and gone through. I think of the Pearsons, and I'm thankful to the Lord for your faithfulness and your steadiness and your steadfastness. And Carol, especially, I thank the Lord for you, you know, going through things with your cancer, and you've always been one who gives thanks and praise to God and His grace. I'm thankful for that. For the Bonesires, I mean, I'm thankful for all that God has done in terms of giving you all a theological grounding and understanding. For the Bells, I, I think about just Gordy's commitment to prayer. I tell other people at other churches, say, oh, how are things going? I say, well, we've got George Mueller in our church. You know, <laughs> I'm thankful, Gordy, for your focus on that, your feedback, your input in my life. And Edith and the Belangs, I, I appreciate your joy. Just, Edith, you abound with joy. Bring that, bring that foreign custom, the Filipinos, to us. And I'm thankful to the Lord for all of you. I'm thankful for how God has worked, your faith and love in God, and your love for all the saints. And I just want to do what Paul has done in everything, in all your hearts. Give thanks to the Lord. Now, one of the things also Paul tells us that our, our sphere, our, the places in which we ought to express our thanks. If you're back here in Colossians 3, look. In Colossians 3, verse 15. Paul is telling us to express our thanks in the community of believers. In order to catch this context, it needs to come in chapter 3, verse 12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It's talking about the body life. How the body should work together, being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And beyond all these things, put on love, <clears throat> which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
Like it's God's peace just ruling there. There might be peace in the body to which indeed you are called into one body. And here it is. And be thankful. The context of that, I believe, is all social actions. Right? Being united together in love and being thankful. That's where we ought to express our thanks. We ought to express our thanks in worship. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, our time of singing this morning was very appropriate. It's maybe a a focused time of worship as we focused it all upon the thankfulness of God. This should characterize all of our singing. should characterize all of our worship. You know, but it's not even limited just when we would gather as a church. Notice what it says. It says, singing in your hearts to God. For some of the, those of you who are singing challenged, this might be a verse of encouragement that comes to you. We sing in our hearts with thanks to God. That's how we ought to do it in our worship. We ought to express our thanks in our prayers. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Whenever you are praying, and it should be often, Because you're supposed to be devoted to prayer. You know, those things that you're devoted to, it's the things that you do again and again and practice and keep at at it. Whenever you pray, thankfulness ought to saturate your prayers. Expressing it and being one who's giving thanks all the time. Your whole attitude and demeanor and approach to God should be thanks-saturated. You lay your head upon your pillow at night, offer up a quick, quick prayer to God, and it should be a prayer of thanks. You gather your family for family worship and in your prayers you should eminently thank God for what He has done in your family. You come to prayer meeting on Sunday mornings and before a service to pray and your prayer should be filled with thanks to God because it's what it says, devoted to prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. And so whether you find yourself in the community of believers mixing and mingling or whether you find yourself in a worship service singing praise to God whether you find yourself praying off in a corner by yourself, it all ought to be done with an attitude of thanks, saturating your life. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Well, that's my first point. Thanksgiving should saturate your life. My second point this morning, Thanksgiving should be governed by Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving should be governed by Jesus Christ. Now, a governor is one who rules and a governor is one who leads, but when you apply a governor to machines, it's a device that that controls the machine. Make sure it doesn't go too fast or too slow or too hot or too cold. In fact, Elroy works for Woodward Governor and does helps create governors for airplanes, governing fuel systems and what else? I don't know. Propellers and you know making sure they go right and just making sure they don't go too fast or too slow or making sure that it's not too hot or too cold. Just governing everything and that's what we ought to do. Jesus Christ ought to govern our thanks. And and the way I say that is that I think that our life and our actions ought to be consistent with and driven by Jesus. And I think that's what he's talking about where he says, do it all, here it is, in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
right? It's in the name of Jesus. We're his representatives, but oftentimes it's the, the name of Jesus sometimes means power of Jesus. So we're doing so in the power of Jesus. It also means, you know, the reputation. It just kind of means in the whole sphere of Christ, we ought to do all, particularly giving thanks. See, because Christians base their lives upon a person, not upon rules and regulations, ideas, or philosophies. Our faith rests upon a man, the God-man who lived 2,000 years ago. And this is what Colossians is all about. Colossians is a book in which Paul wrote to combat false teaching that was taking place in Colossae. And there were different aspects of this teaching. One aspect of it was of, of Gnostics, Gnosticism, who taught a mystical, experiential knowledge of God that you had to, to, to experience this to attain to this. And what Paul says is, you don't need to attain to this mystery. Listen, it's there through Jesus Christ, the knowledge of Him. It's a person, right? It's not this principle. There are elements of Judaism which taught, hey, you need to come back and keep the law and keep the feasts. And Paul said, no, no, it's not about the law and the feasts and the rules, external. It's about Jesus. And there are elements in this heresy about asceticism, right? Teaching you need to deprive your body of earthly pleasures like food or, you know, whip yourself or, or sleep on a, a stone or, or don't cover yourself at night so you can be cold. People were saying that if you want to be really spiritual. And Jesus said, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. In fact, I want to just show a couple of, of passages that show that. First, to combat the Gnostics, who place this importance on the exclusive experiential knowledge which only a few can have. Paul writes at the beginning of chapter 2. Turn back there. Chapter 2, Colossians. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul's saying he is struggling here for those at Colossae and Laodicea. Laodicea is about 10 miles away. Certainly the same heresies had spilled over. He says, all who have not seen my face. He said, I'm laboring for all of you. This isn't just like the exclusive club like the Gnostics. This is for all of you. And he says, I'm laboring that your hearts may be encouraged. Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See what he's doing here? He's saying it's not about Gnostic experiential knowledge. He's saying the solution is in the knowledge of Jesus Because it's not in those things, those experiencing elusive things that only a few can get at. No, it's in the knowledge of Christ. And it says there, right, he's verse 5, Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Because you have faith in Christ, you'll know Christ, and you'll be stable against the Gnostics. When he wrote against the Judaizers who wanted people to keep the law, he said the same thing in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see what he's doing here? He's saying that these, these people would say, oh, you need to keep the Old Testament. You need to keep the dietary laws. You need to keep the feasts and the festivals, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Yom Kippur, Passover, the Sabbath observances, right? But, but Paul says it's not about all those things. 
Those are our shadows. But the substance is Jesus. You know, you take a light and shine it. You know, say a flashlight on an object. And the shadow will be there only while the light's shining on it. When you turn the light off, the shadow goes away. But the substance is still there. It always remains. And that was his point, that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of these things. With Jesus, we no longer need to to focus our attention upon keeping all those laws. It's upon Jesus. And it's the same argument for the ascetics, right? When dealing with the ascetics who encourage people to treat their body harshly and to suffer. Right? Those at Colossae, they're encouraging them to live lives of self-abasement, as verse 18 says. Paul says exactly the same thing. It's not the things you do that make you holy. It's dying with Christ that makes you holy. Look at verses 20 through 23 of chapter 2. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, and here come these ascetic decrees, don't handle this, don't taste that, don't touch this, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. These are matters which have to be sure, and here it is, they have an appearance of wisdom telling you to do all these things and to keep away from this and to touch this and to do this. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. My own religion, what I'm doing, I'm afflicting myself, severely treating my body. There is an apparent wisdom that looks in that, but he says they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. And what's the main thing of value against fleshly indulgence? Dying with Christ. That's what verse 20 says. See, it's not cutting yourself with a knife that makes you spiritual. It's not depriving yourself of the stomach of food for days that makes you spiritual. It's dying with Christ, as Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 3, setting your minds on the things above. That's what makes you spiritual. And so it's important, here it is, that everything is governed in the name of Jesus Christ, governed by Christ, even your thanksgiving. You need to come to God in your thanksgiving, understanding everything that's for you in Christ Jesus. And that's the centrality of my my burden of my message this morning. We'd focus upon Christ and the centrality of Him and our thanks. You know, there's a way in which we get this concept exactly right. I read of a story of the Australian Sunday school teacher who felt that her approach to teaching was in need of some, some change. And so she thought that she was becoming too predictable and the children were becoming bored with their storytelling and, and really questioning what they had learned. And she decided a new tact. And she said on the next Sunday, once the preliminaries were over, she stood in the front of these five-year-olds and she said, Okay, now, children, who can tell me? What is gray and furry and lives in eucalyptus trees? And the children were taken by surprise because they don't normally hear about gray, furry things living in eucalyptus trees during Sunday school class. And so they thought there might be a catch to this, and so they kind of stared blankly at the teacher. And then she said, come on, come on, you can do it. What is gray and and furry, lives in eucalyptus trees, has a black leathery nose and beady eyes? And the kids were still silent. He says, come on, It, it lives in eucalyptus trees, it eats the leaves, it's big beady eyes, it has furry ears, what is it? And there's quiet and there's silence. And she was about to switch tactics and go to something else when one small girl kind of gradually raised her hand. And then she said with some hesitation, she said, well, teacher, I know it's Jesus, but it sounds like a koala. <laughs> See, because there's a sense, even the kids pick up on it. 
that were all about Jesus. I've seen it as well. After my, my sermon, I always come around here and gather the kids around. It's a great time for me as a pastor to help shepherd the kids and, and relate to them. And I come over and I bring my notes and I, I pull this out. And we put the chair and we start going through these notes and I start talking to them. And it, inevitably, this happens, oh, maybe once a month or so, <clears throat> there comes a question that some people are stumped upon. They don't quite know the answer. And they say, do you know the answer? Do you know the answer? And sometimes kids will say, Jesus? They do. Because they've got something right and there's something about what we do that's exactly right. Jesus is the answer to every question. Jesus is the answer to every difficulty. Jesus is the solution to every problem. It's not mystical knowledge. It's Jesus. It's not Jewish laws. It's Jesus. It's not severe treatment of the body. It's Jesus. And and I think in some ways, Paul always brought it back here to Christ and what he did on the cross. In many ways, I think we can get it wrong by focusing... our attention too much on peripheral issues, right? We can focus a little bit like the Gnostics maybe on everything that we know and our doctrines become so high that that what's important is the doctrine rather than Jesus. And I think doctrine's incredibly important, but I think it's got to be subservient to Christ and everything on the cross and flowing from that and be governed by that We can focus on the things we do, our ministry methods, our style of music, leadership structure in the church, and those are all important. But but when they get distorted and become like the huge thing, how we do our church, or or what we do, or, or how things are structured, when that becomes the main thing, which it can easily, we've missed it because that's not the main thing. We can focus upon our efforts at pursuing purity. Really pressing. Be holy, be holy, be righteous. This, do, 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 do. And we miss it entirely. It's righteousness done in Christ. Now, it's not, it's not that these things are bad in themselves. I mean, they're good. We need to think about it. We need to think about church structure and, and uh, the way we do things. But listen, they always need to be subservient to Jesus. It's bad when they become the main thing and receive the main focus. Because Jesus is, and Paul always brings him back to Christ. And that's what I'm trying to do here when it says, whatever you do in word or day, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do do it all governed by Christ and being saturated by who He is in the sphere of Christ, being governed by Jesus Christ. And that includes the giving of thanks. Well, my third point this morning, not only should Thanksgiving saturate your life, not only should Thanksgiving be governed by Jesus Christ, but also Thanksgiving should be expressed through Jesus That's exactly what this says right at the end of verse 17. Giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You see, it's through Jesus that we have access to God the Father. We get to God through the mediatorship of Jesus. That's what 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. He is our high priest, the writer of the Hebrews says. In other words, He's the one that represents us. Right, that's what the high priest did. He took the sacrifices of the people, right? And he went once into the Holy of Holies. And he, he offered up for himself and then he offered up for the people to God, representing the people before God. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. That's the role of the high priest. And really to see how we give thanks to Jesus, I think there are two key reasons, two key things that we need to see there. We need to see who Jesus is, 
right? That he's qualified even to bridge the gap between man and God and what it is that Jesus did because it's what Jesus did that provides the foundation for covering that gap. So let's look even at who Jesus is back in chapter 1 of Colossians. I think in all verses, passages in the Bible, there's no other passage that describes who Jesus is than this passage here. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And I don't think it's an accident because I think Paul is fundamentally bringing us back always to the centrality of Christ. It says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Which means He's God. He wasn't made in the image of God. He was the image of God Himself. And yet, He came into creation. Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean, if the Jehovah Witnesses say, that He was the first being created. It means that of all creation, He was the highest of all. Jesus was the Supreme One. He was God, coming into the creation and being the Supreme of all creation. Verse 16 speaks about how Jesus created. It says, by Him, it's by Jesus, all things were created. Next time you're reading your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I hope it comes January 1st when you decide, you know, this year I'm going to read the Bible with Rock Valley Bible Church. It comes Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And when you read here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 ought to govern your understanding of the Old Testament. You ought to read this. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. But Paul goes beyond even Genesis 1, 1. Perhaps. He says, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. The things you can see and the things you can't see, He created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. We can look at the the creation and just wonder at awe of how huge and big it is. Our, Our children are studying science right now. And I've stepped inside sometimes for my lunch, and they are describing just how, how far and how vast the universe is and the millions and millions of galaxies. And just it blows your mind how big that is. But did you know that there's another realm which we can't even see that God has created? It's the angelic realm. And we don't even know how big that is. We do get a sense in Revelation chapter 5 of how the angels were worshiping around the, the throne. And John writes, Revelation 5.11, The number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Thousands of thousands, right? We start doing some math. Thousands of thousands is what, children? What's thousands of thousands? Christopher, thousands of thousands. Millions. Millions around. And then he says myriads of myriads. A myriad, some people say, is maybe 10,000. But it might even be more. It might be like we say Google. You know how big a Google is? A one followed by a hundred zero. I mean, that's what they were saying. They were saying that there was a Google of them. They were like myriads, myriads of them. So what's ten thousands of ten thousands? Who knows that question? That's a little harder. Hundreds of millions, maybe even billions. Paul or John is there in heaven seeing hundreds of millions of angels around the throne. And these are things that Jesus created that we didn't even see. I mean, to give you an idea how big that is, I remember when I was in California, I went to the Rose Bowl to a UCLA football game one time. 
I went to many of them. She played in the orchestra on the field of the Rose Bowl. <clears throat> but uh, I went to one game, and the stadium was packed, 106,000 people. In order to have myriads of myriads, you need to have thousands of Rose Bowls all in a line, all worshiping Jesus. That kind of gives you the magnitude of what Jesus created. Not only just the things visible, but the things invisible. And they're all worshiping Jesus. Look what it says at the end of verse 16. They've been created by Him and for Him. Jesus is the Creator. He created the world for a purpose. He created us for Himself. He was the carpenter building His own house. He was the furniture maker building his own chair. He was the artist painting a painting for his own living room. He was the mechanic putting together his own car. That's what Jesus did in the creation. That's what he did in you. He created you for himself. And that's why it's so disgraceful when the creation rejects Jesus. Because we're created for him. Could you imagine this chair rejecting the furniture maker who built the chair? Right? The furniture maker goes to sit down and, and the chair, you know, pulls one of these, oops, you know, moves himself away and the furniture maker falls down. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the chair. It's a disgrace to us. It's a disgrace to the maker, creator. That's, that's the level of what it means to reject Jesus. We can go through here. Verse 17, he's before all things. Jesus existed before the world was began. In him all things hold together. That's, gravity is held together by Jesus. He holds all things in life in place by Jesus. Paul said, in Him we live and move and have our being. Job 34 says, if God would remove His Spirit, we'd be dust like that because He holds us together. And that's Jesus who does that. And in verse 18, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He's not only head over creation, He's head over the church. He's head over Rock Valley Bible Church. Unless you think that we're just this grand old club like the Kiwanis, we're not. We're an organization that Jesus has built by willingly dying on the cross, raising from the dead, and granting forgiveness to those who believe and gathering them together in a church. And he does so, verse 18, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Just in everything. Jesus is so awesome. And I felt like I haven't even done justice to this passage. I've skipped over a bunch of stuff in my notes. But Jesus is just so awesome that he ought to have first place in everything. I ought to have first place in everything, right? He ought to govern our prayer lives. Everything of our prayer life ought to be expressed through Jesus, right? Because everything ought to be given to Jesus, and then Jesus, our high priest, gives that to the Father. It's based upon who He is, and secondly, it's based upon what Jesus did. You know, Thanksgiving is an interesting thing, right? When you give thanks. When do you give thanks for something? Kids, when do you give thanks for something? Yeah, Preston. You know? Anytime. Maybe some other kids can help. When do you give thanks for something? When? When? Yeah. Yeah, when they give it to you, after it's done. Thanksgiving predominantly is a past action, right? We don't don't thanks for the future, though you can thank God for the future, but you predominantly Thanksgiving is always, oh, you receive the gift, and what do you do? You extend thanks afterwards. Someone does something nice for you, you give thanks after the fact. 
And that's what thanks is talking about here. And that's what we need to do with Jesus, right? We need to go give thanks to God through Jesus because of who He is and because of what He did. He did this on the cross. Also, let me just think about thanksgiving. If you're given something, when do you say thanks and when don't you say thanks? Oftentimes. You ever seen this picture before? I remember SR was given this... uh, this Christmas present. I think it was last Christmas or two Christmases ago. And, and uh, her, um, it was given by, by um, kind of some distant relatives. And they were all excited. They gave him some like farm creatures, you know, barns and stuff like that. But SR was really into Legos. But they didn't know that. They thought he'd be really excited. And so they were really excited to give this to him. And they thought SR would open this up. And when you get something that's totally undeserved, you really, really want, what do you do? You say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But you, he opened this up. You know what he did? Kind of, oh, okay, okay, kind of, you know, kind of brushed. He was a little disappointed. You don't spontaneously give thanks for things in which you are disappointed about. You spontaneously give thanks for the things that you, you really want and you really delight in and that you have a need and also things that you don't deserve. Someone does a great act of kindness to you. You don't deserve it, right? And those who feel like they're the less deserving are the most thankful people in the world, right? They give you something that you didn't deserve. You say, Thank you. Thank you. Right? Someone just gives you a gift. You know, whatever. Thank you for this. And she's like, whoa, whoa. And just those kind of things, right? It's in the past. It's the kindness of another. Undeserved what you really want. That all took place in the cross. It took place 2,000 years ago. It was unbelievable kindness upon us. It was totally undeserved. As we live our lives and see more and more of our failures, we see more and more clearly how precious the cross is. And we come to see how much we really, really need it and want it. And that ought to create joy and thanks to God for what He did. And what He did is made clear in chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, "...when you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." He's painting a pretty grim picture. For those of you who have been in our home Bible studies, you've been seeing this, right? What it means to be dead in sins means we're unresponsive. We loved our sin. We willfully indulged ourselves in the desires of the flesh. It's a grim picture. And then the good news comes. He made you alive together with Him. That's a picture of salvation the Bible gives. We're dead and helpless until God makes us alive in Christ. And that God then gives this life. And then here's the fabulous thing. When God gives life, He also then abolishes all of the accusers against us. All the accusers are all abolished. Right? Because being released from prison isn't enough. You might still have that record that's charging you with a crime. You've got to have that wiped away. You've got to have that abolished. You've got to have that taken away. You've got to abolish our sin. And that's what verse 13 speaks about. He's forgiven us all our transgressions. Our transgressions are there and they've been an offense to God, but God has forgiven them by making us alive, abolishing our accusers. And really comes to verse 14 about how our accusers have been abolished. It says this, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. You know, the law of God acts as our accuser. And there's a certain sense in heaven where God's got this, this huge clipboard, chalkboard. It's up there and it's got all the laws of all, everything that we're supposed to do. And when we don't obey it, what happens? 
God just puts a tally mark, puts a tally mark, and puts a tally mark, and puts a tally mark. And, and the immensity of this sin just goes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Every sin we've committed is recorded in heaven. And as you live and as you sin, the accumulation of this gets bigger and bigger, right? You take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and God goes, Toot. Nope. You lust after another man or woman, and it's, Boop. You deceive someone you're talking with, another chalk, another mark. It just builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it grows and it grows and it grows. And these, these decrees are hostile to us and it comes and it, it looks to crush us and smash us. And every time you violate them, God just ticks off all these marks. And you know what? The debt is so huge, you will never repay it. I mean, you think you have a credit card bill? It doesn't compare to this bill. It is so huge, you can never pay it. But God then, here's what he does. He wipes it away. He takes out his eraser and wipes the slate clean and saying nothing there. He's saying, no, wait a minute. How can he do that? How can he wipe it away? Well, he can do that by the cross, what Jesus did for us on the cross. Look what it says there. Having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Remember when Jesus was crucified? Pilate had this sign written. And it's posted upon the top of the cross. Remember what it says? What does it say? Jesus, King of the Jews. And that was the crime that he was dying for. It was a custom back then to put crimes of people, what they died for, above their cross. Murderer. You know, so someone says, why is that guy? Oh, he's a murderer. Why is that guy on the cross? Oh, he's a thief. Why is that guy on the cross? Oh, he's an adulterer. And now this is beautiful. Okay, catch this. What... Paul says here is that Jesus, is that God, has taken our sins out of the day, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, God nailed another sign on top of the cross that we didn't see, the world didn't see, but there was another sign there. And that sign nailed, had a sign including and detailing all the sins of those who would believe. On the cross, 2,000 years ago, God nailed it to the cross. Our sins. And it's all wiped away. And it's through then, Jesus then being the high priest, we can offer thanks to God through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ shed forth His blood for us upon the cross. Are you thankful? Are you thankful through Christ to God the Father? Because He was God. He could be a perfect sacrifice. And He was the sacrifice on the cross. And we ought to look back at those things and we ought to say, oh God, I'm thankful to you. I needed that. Uh, it comes undeserved to me. You've been so kind. And God, I am thankful to you. That's how we ought to be. In fact, I heard someone say recently, I shared this at the flock the other night, that when you consider your sin before God, you know, it's really not as bad as you think. It's far worse. And when you think about the forgiveness that we possess in Christ, it's, it's not as good as you think it is. It is far better. And that's the act of incredible kindness that God did to us in Christ. And for that, we ought to be thankful. And there's no better way to express our thanks than in the Lord's Supper. I mean, have you ever heard the term the Eucharist? You heard that term? Some liturgical churches use that. Do you know what that means, Eucharist? Anybody know what does it mean? 
is thanks. That's the Greek word for thanks. Eucharisteo. Eu from eulogy, a good word. Eu means good. And charis, good graced. It's kind of what it is. But you put those two things together and it comes out as thankfulness. And so what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper really is express our thanks to God through Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. Again, let us remind ourselves there of looking at the cross as we think about the Lord's Supper. Looking at the cross, we're supposed to do this. Jesus commanded this to do this. Right? Remember when He took the bread and He took the cup? What did He say? He says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. And that's what we're doing this morning. We are remembering Jesus and primarily we are thanking Jesus. I trust it's your heart this morning as we've looked at how Thanksgiving should just saturate our life and Thanksgiving is should be governed by Jesus and who He is, should be expressed through Jesus. This is the thanks that we ought to give. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Why do we proclaim the Lord's death? Because we're looking back in thanks to God for what He's done and accomplished for us through Christ. And the warning comes, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This simply means, if you're believing, if you're thankful, if you're trusting the cross of Christ, then by all means, celebrate and take it together. But if you're not today, if you're in willful sin, don't take it. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. So let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We always provide a time of self-examination, just so you can confess your sin in light of the cross. You can pray to the God, God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can confess, you can confess your unthankfulness, confess your sins to God, and know that He is there, ready to forgive. Why don't you bow your head, examine your hearts before Him, that you might not take it in an unworthy manner. For to do so brings judgment upon yourself, and I as a pastor don't want to bring that judgment. I want you rather to take it willingly and and joyfully. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ and would pray that you would grant us the grace, God, to follow Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, word or tongue, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I pray, God, our lives would be saturated with thanks as we think even here about the cross. May our lives be so totally saturated with thanksgiving that we can do nothing but Eucharisteo, to give thanks to you for making us clean, making us holy, wiping away our sins, nailing them to the cross, identifying our sins with the blood of Jesus, that we would go free. And I pray as we celebrate this, may it be a time of joy as we reflect and think upon the cross of Christ once more. God, to see Him hanging there upon the cross and realize that it was for me He died. And if this cup and this bread represent that, 
God, I pray that we might take this with joy, placing our trust not in this bread and not in this cup that's passed, but in what they represent, which is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ.